Hello, this is Lisa LaRose on Connect to Love on PRN.FM, and I'm joined by my co-host, the wonderful Michael J. Russ. And today we have a very, very special guest. I'm so excited to share her work with you because it is, to me, so important. Um, her name is Annie Brooke, and I'd like to just welcome you both before I, I start. So welcome, Michael, and welcome, Annie. Oh, thanks so, so much. Glad to be here. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So Absolutely. I, I was... As, as often, you know, I, I, Michael knows this, and Annie, I'm so grateful. You know, we, we truly, we call this show Connect to Love, and I find that when we do connect and we drop into our heart, there's a frequency that we emit and we send out to the universe, and those that are in harmonic resonance with that are drawn to it. And you reached out to Michael, which I found so beautiful because his work resonated with you. And, you know, it's as we talked uh, a few episodes ago about how we plant the seeds and we don't know when they're going to bloom and where it's going to take fruit and really uh, multiply. So, uh, you know, it, it just it, it just tickled me that you reached out to him. And so I, I like to always start with a quote, and um, this particular one came from a young man who wrote a book called 101 Quotes That Will Change Your Life. And he said, when the clouds pretend to block out the sun, remember that the sun is always still shining. And then he went on to say that on your journey toward a positive outlook on life, you're going to have warnings when you feel the excitement of living, you'll arrive to work with a confidence that you only see, you know, with 1%. Then in a blink of an eye, something that can happen that will knock you to the bottom of the pack. When this happens, you need to know your dreams and goals are still in the same place you left them. They may be hard to find when you let negative thoughts enter your mind, but they still have influence. No matter what small obstacle block would have entered your day, you must hit that block, hit back with 99% of your mind. Never let the little things block out your vision you've been fighting for. Your goals are still shining if you refuse to let the obstacles cloud your vision. Surround your vision with sunshine and clouds will only be an illusion. And I have to say, Annie, that uh, when I read your bio, it was so amazing. Not only do you blend psychotherapy and sensory motor neuroscience and play therapy, but it sounds as though you have had just an amazing journey. Though your your practice is in Colorado, um, it sounds as though you have enjoyed time around the world, learning lots of different things, you know, from a log cabin in Maine to a fishing boat in Alaska. And I thought, gee, she was making stoneware in, in Scotland. And I would... <laughs> absolutely love to hear a little bit about your journey uh, what brought you uh, to somatic therapy and um, how how you know it really touched your heart and what you know what you would like to share about it so first of all welcome and, and I'm so excited to, to hear what you have to share oh thanks so yeah. much and yeah it's been a wild ride a little bit you know, fortunately, I grew up in a in a loving family because I ended up with lots of experiences in life that were less than optimal. And I think what mm-hmm. led me to really uh, realizing that 
oh, there are things I can do. I call them the tools that heal that have to do with my thoughts, my emotions, and reinforming my brain. Because in my early 20s, I was, uh, had built a log cabin. You know, I had dropped out of college and gone to Maine, and, and we were going to start a water-powered furniture business, make furniture, and I was doing stoneware pottery. And so you have these young ambitions. And in all of that, and a lot of hard work, of course, so mm-hmm. in, in all of that, just working away, and, and then my partner, without, you know, there, there was some stresses between he and the other guys working in the mill, and, and pretty soon he was starting to drink a lot. And I was mm-hmm. young. I was like, you know, I didn't know anything about that. My, it wasn't something from my family pattern. And, and so here we were in this rural, isolated place, and all of a sudden I didn't have the person I thought I was connecting with available. And that mm. became, yeah, that was like, whoa, what's going on here? And then what, uh, you know, and, and then I thought, well, maybe I'll join him, right? Maybe that's, he, he always said, well, a six pack a day mm. is just fine. And I was like, wow. well, but you're slurring your words. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And then I had, my grandma had, you know, given me a Kahlua recipe and I thought, well, I'll just drink, I was starting to get unhappy is what happened. I was Mm -hmm. headed down this path. I had made a commitment. We had built our house. We had this project. We had our life defined. And I wasn't happy because I was missing some of those connect to love pieces. And so and then I almost became alcoholic myself. I started drinking Kahlua and milk, you know, not a hard drink, but it was hard on my system. And sure. I remember thinking, oh, my gosh. I remember the day when I wanted to have two of those in one day, and I thought, oh, you are in trouble. And I could almost feel the black hole of falling into alcoholism. And so I went and I took the Kahlua. I went outside. I dumped it in the yard. And it was a bit of a beginning of a wake-up call, you know, like, oh, my, I'm a little bit out of control here, and my life is getting out of control. And I don't mean that we should control our life rigidly, but we do have to align it. We have to align it to our values. And so then what happened is with, I went to visit my family in Florida, and my partner burned the house down by accident. What? Yeah. Yeah, right? Wow. Here I am. Yeah, I'm like 22 or something, and all this hard work of years, and all of a sudden, there's nothing <laughs> left. Oh yeah, my and so that was, and that's what I learned about shock, that when you get overwhelmed, you numb out, and that's a right. normal response, right. you know. Some people get highly reactive. Other people go numb. And I tended to go numb and put one foot in front of the other, just keep going. And so mm-hmm. I got a job on a fishing boat to earn money off of Cape Cod because I, a, a neighbor up in Maine had a boat off Cape Cod. And he said, you could come fish, earn some money, you know, come home once a month. So I was doing that. And it was just nothing but stress. Everything was stress and worry. I don't know if any of your listeners have been in a place in their life where all they could do was worry but it starts mm-hmm. to exhaust the brain's ability to function. And I had so much worry and 
fear build up in all of that. And then I had what's called a wake-up call when I was working on the fishing boat. I, I was, we came in real low tide and I had my basket of lobsters and I climbed up this metal ladder, like 17 feet climb and get up on the wharf. And then I was so numb, I just blanked out and let go of the ladder right at the top. Oh my goodness. And with, yeah, I mean, that was crazy. Who wants to do that, yeah? But when you're exhausted and you're full of worry and you're not thinking straight, there's something that the body does. I know all this stuff now because I had to study it to heal myself. But you can go into a freeze response where you're not processing the world around you. And sometimes you'll see people get so depressed they're almost catatonic mm-hmm. or they, they don't think straight. That, that's a body response to overwhelm. And one response mm-hmm. is to, to freeze. You know, if, if there's too much sensory input coming in, then what happens is the body sort of freezes. It can try to fight or run, but if there's, you know, if it's the unseen enemy, like you can't fight it, then it can just freeze. And it's like if you have a rock and you throw it at ice or you throw it at a mirror, it's going to break into a bunch of pieces. And it can get highly creative. That's the gifted kids sometimes. They have all this creativity, but they can't relax in their body. And so I didn't know all this at the time. All I knew was I was... I let go of this ladder and all of a sudden I was held by this force field of love that was so powerful. That's all I could feel. Mm-hmm. Now I was 23 years old. I felt like I was up in the air watching my body sort of spiral. And it's a good thing I didn't fall straight down because I would have landed on a water tank with rebar welded on top of it. But mm. to, the side, to the side of that tank was an old tire. And so I kind of spiraled through the air, and all I could feel was this love. And it was like, well, if my body survives, I'll go back. If it doesn't, I won't. But this love is what matters. And so it was an interesting place where I wasn't afraid. I wasn't worried, and I wasn't afraid. Mm -hmm. And then my body landed on the tire and bounced. And as soon as my body bounced, I was back in it, and I made a vow to myself. I want to feel that much love from inside my body. And I want to understand what spirit is about. You know, what is that depth of spirit that has guidance in it like that? And so within a couple months, I had quit fishing. And I had gone to, uh, my sister was out in California. And I went to a meditation school. And I started studying meditation. And it was a kind of meditation called discursive, which was Sufi-based. Sufi is a kind of meditation philosophy. Mm -hmm. And and very loving. But they had us do things with body awareness, like put your attention, you know, sit down, plant your feet, uh, breathe, imagine you've got energy centers running through your body. So they were making me aware of my physical self. And then we would do a meditation like put your attention in your right shoulder, put it in your left knee, put it in your toe. And all of a sudden, instead of being 
fixated on my worry, my brain was shifting attention again. And that was such a relief. And I was becoming aware of what I felt instead of being numb. So this was eye-opening for me. And at the same time, I got involved in a four-year training program called Healing Ourselves. And they used breath work and uh, what's called Neo-Reikian. It's a kind of emotional body work process where you move energy through the body. It almost looks like you're tantruming sometimes, but you're actually releasing the rigidity and getting the flow back in your system. And that's a very simplistic way to describe it, but instead of bottling everything up and going numb, you're actually feeling again. And then I started studying movement repatterning, and I went back and actually practiced crawling as an infant because it shapes your brain. So all of a sudden, from being Miss Worry, I thought I was going to become a bag lady because I couldn't handle a job or a conversation. All of a sudden, I was stabilizing internally. And that became the guiding force of how do I, and then I started volunteering. You know, I I taught at this uh, meditation school and I started seeing clients and I volunteered at Children's Hospital to work with the children who had trauma. Because in that whole study process of my own healing, I also learned about birth trauma, which I didn't even know existed. But for me, post-birth, I was what I did is I read the book called The Magical Child. And when I read that book, I got mad because I realized, oh, I was not, you know, born and put on my mama and allowed to be with my mom. I was born early. I was premature and I was whisked away into an incubator. And then I was poked and prodded and had tubes up my nose. And, you know, that was kind of not so much fun for a newborn. And I realized, oh, there's lots of reasons that I'm the way I am. Not a pathology, but just a discovery. Like, why, you know, why would I have, as a kid, I had all these temper tantrums. And bless the parents who have these high temper tantrum kids, It's because the kids can't handle the stimulation. What we call a sensory motor loop is when our natural sensations can be processed and we can respond to it. So we're kind of in the flow. And that's our thoughts, our emotions, our physicality. We're not frozen or overwhelmed. And so one of the books I wrote was to help parents. It's called Help for Sensory Challenges. Because if you had that early development interrupted, there can often be in the primitive, primitive brain a protective response and a feeling of being threatened even when you're not. It's so interesting, the, the perceptual filters that live inside the brain. So anyway, this whole experience in my life led me to be very curious about, wow, I felt so much healing when I started meditating. I started breathing and moving emotions through my body instead of being reactive or being numb. And then I started repatterning my movement so I didn't default to the same old habits. And so 
I just fell into my work of helping others because I realized, you know, I was very much on the brink of what felt like some very crazy-making places. And I know lots of people are when they get stressed out. Mm-hmm. And I, I was able yeah. to find the, te- the teachers and the teachings and the tools and sort of rewrite the ship. And learning that that is something that you can do is it's almost like a miracle. It's like, oh, there, but for the grace of God go I, right? I mean, we've all seen stress and what happens to our loved ones. And so if we can share, for me, I kind of developed a little passion of sharing what I learned that helped me and finding ways to continue to help others. So I became a psychotherapist, and I volunteered at Oakland Children's Hospital, and I worked with, you know, the the traumatized uh, little ones there and with sexually abused foster kids and gang youth and family therapy. And I just got my fingers in the pie of, wow, how do we relate? How do we, you know, how do we stabilize and make life work? And so I learned a lot through through experiential learning. I went and got a graduate degree in family systems therapy and organizational development, like how do groups work. But all of it had at the foreground of it, what is self-awareness? And how do you slow yourself down so you're not reactive? And how do you orient towards enjoying life instead of orienting to all the stress you've had. I think that's so beautiful. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm just so blown away. Go ahead, Michael, please. I was simply going to say that that you you explained your journey thus far and how you got to this this place in your life so uh, eloquently. Uh, To me, what I – I'm a big-picture thinker. I can kind of see the, the path. Uh, I can clearly see the path that you, that your soul chose to actually uh, get to where you are right now. Why you chose, you know, from your from your uh, exper- earlier experience, uh, your self awareness, and how that led to you to to really just open up and and be a, a vessel to receive uh, all kinds of information along the lines of of uh, of helping people. And you've really set yourself up to the point right now, and, and are dealing with. Uh, a, I'm going to say it, a, a uh, you know, something that a lot of, there's a huge need for what you are doing right now. I, I think that's the best, oh, that's the best way for me to put absolutely. it. Absolutely. A huge yeah. need. There's a, absolutely, it's, it's, it's so amazing. Um, I don't, uh, I, I don't think that people really understand a lot of, of why they do what they do and how they, why they shut down and, and um, what you bring to the table is some kind of some clarity that helps them, that can help them um, move forward in their lives. And I think that's awesome. That, that's my wish. And, you know, for people new to this idea that actually it's not about blaming other people, but yeah, it's about me, me taking charge. Oh, the, the first yeah. thing is to learn how to, to what I call stop in your tracks. To slow down your reactivity and reorient. 
So I have a little exercise. We can all do it. It's like where you take your hands and maybe you rub them together for a minute and imagine you're holding a little breathing ball so that as if you have a little, you know, inhale, exhale, little ball in your hands and there's movement instead of a freeze response. So as that little breathing ball in, in your imagination, your hands will move out a little bit and they'll relax and come in, just like a breath. But why I like to do this through your hands is because you're literally interrupting any frozenness. You're showing your body yeah, gotcha. that, oh, it's okay to move. It's okay mm-hmm. to move here. And so slowing exactly. down and, and breathing, um, not just focusing on your breath, but on the actual movement of breath, helps you, the brain realize it's not under a life-threatening circumstance. It doesn't have to freeze. It can take action. And what we want to do is get our sensory signals to go past our reactive brain up to our higher brain where we can creatively problem solve or get infused with knowing. You know, sometimes you hear a little voice inside that's, you know, some people say God's voice or whatever, spirit's voice or your intuition. Mm -hmm. You can't really hear that if, you're frozen because Mm -hmm. you will be in a part of the brain that's called the limbic emotional part of the brain that's really looking through old filters because for efficiency it's better you know if you were being threatened by a tiger you learn to run away Mm -hmm. so that's in your filter it's in your file cabinet of oh when this happens i do this That's why people can get reactive. Like one fellow I'm supporting, his dad would rage at him as a little kid. You know, what's a kid going to do? They're going to freeze. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now he rages at his wife. And I'm like, you cannot do that. Just because your dad did that to you, you know, and so I'm helping him actually interrupt the knee-jerk reaction of that behavior. And part of it is by Mm. slowing down by giving a cognition to understand why his nervous system does that. So you have to have a little bit of that neuroscience understanding. But the, the biggest one is to, to breathe, use that breathing ball to slow down, to understand what I call the hidden stories behind difficult behavior. And these are often mm-hmm. the precognitive stories left over from birth, Like some kids who were pulled out by forceps, they can create power struggles their whole life. Hmm, Or they can always, in an interaction, they're trying to headbutt, you know, they're trying to be pushy because they were so pushed on. Or or sometimes, yeah, it's fascinating, and I learned so much. Fascinating, it is. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. I think about that's going way back though. Yeah, it makes me think of a few people that I know, and you wonder why is it that they always seem to be having challenges, no matter what it is that they do or try, that they always seem to get entangled back into those patterns. And one of the things, Annie, that when I was looking through your work, and it just really touched my heart, was when you said 
that the bodies are the stories of our life. And I just thought to myself, oh, my gosh, like, I always joke about, you know, there's different people who call it a meat suit or whatever it is, you know, that it's just, you know, I always, I always call it a shell, you know, that it's this thing that we inhabit yeah, until we are free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just a vessel. So if you, would you mind talking a little bit about how you came to that realization about the, how bodies are the stories of our life? And, and also you said something about is, is the body safe? Because I think right now, I mean, there's so much dissonance in, in mm-hmm. and Michael and I talk about this. How do we bring that dissonance and resolve it so that we can be in a place of safety and peace and connection? Such a great question, you know. And, and it takes some personal choice and discipline both, especially okay. because the um, brain will, you, we can scare ourselves and compromise our own immune system. Mm. And, and, yeah. and that's, that's what happens if you are always going to orient to fear, to being afraid all the time. Or like me before when I was always worry, 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 my body was getting depleted because it's like wearing off the healthy myelin on the nervous system. You're overexciting the nervous system. So what I call these, how I came to understand them is through my own inquiry work. Because once I was getting all those tools and starting to feel better, I had to sort of go back and go through my life. My graduate school, we were looking at, well, what happened in your family ancestry? You know, what happened in your family that shaped how you view the world? And eventually you just want to have, it's not like you want a clean slate because you've had your experiences. You just don't want them to be trigger experiences. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk about the hidden stories behind difficult behavior, that was an attempt to help parents understand their kids weren't just trying to be bad kids. That there was probably something irritating them, just like an oyster will make a pearl. You know, it's got that mm-hmm. irritating yeah. sand, and then it calcifies around it so you can't get the sand out. And so with ourselves, even though our brain might shut down or something might have happened before we had cognition, that's what our thinking ability that comes in around the age of three, we still have experience. We still have the cells knowing if they're being overwhelmed or terrified or if they feel safe or if they feel comforted. And that flow, that inner flow of containment, you know, a a parent's job is to sort of contain their kids in a good way, give them enough structure so they feel safe, but not repress them. And that's a big job. Mm -hmm. But that that quality of, wow, there's likely a hidden story. And then I started treating children uh, just because I believe in, in, you know, intact families whenever possible and helping children to tell the hidden story so they're not being a behavioral problem for their families. And these little four-year-olds were showing me their birth stories. I had one little girl who had meltdowns you know, her, her parent brought her to see me. Um, she had a good family and, good, you know, they were all 
fairly loving family and everything, and they couldn't understand why is this four-year-old having meltdowns in kindergarten. And often what happens is if there's early stress or birth trauma left in the system, when there's extra stress, like going to school, it can show up. And so with this little girl, what she would do in school, and think about this for a moment, what is she showing you through her play? What she would do is she would go get another kid, she would build a barricade in the classroom, and so it was just her and this other kid behind the barricade, and then she wouldn't let the teachers in. And literally the teachers had to fight their way in and rescue the other kid. And then she'd have these big emotional meltdowns. So I, I, I thought about that, like, what is she showing me? And the first time she entered my treatment room, my little office there, she walked into the corner where I had a little Japanese folding screen, and she does have those little, you know, cracks between the three panels. And she peeks right. out through the panel, and then she starts ripping the soundproofing tape off the wall and taping up the cracks. And I was like, oh, my oh. goodness. Yeah, I thought, mm. what are you doing back there? And she goes, very important work, and don't you come in. And I thought, okay, she is showing me a C-section birth here. Wow. This a C-section girl, birth, really? Yeah. And uh, we spent about, you know, 20 sessions, her and her mom. And her mom, I always treat with the parent in the room. And her mom was verifying everything that showed up. The confusion, wow. the... Yeah, and it was it was the invasive force. And so what she was doing in her classroom was she was trying to keep herself and another kid connected. And then the, the teachers were the substitute doctors coming in and, you know, destroying her world. And for people born <laughs> C-section, everybody's celebrating the live baby, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, hooray, the baby's alive. You want to include the baby story. And I did see one video of a Duke physician, obstetrician, who actually talked to the baby before the operation instead of it being a complete shock. And, you know, what happens with a C-section birth is it's very fast. You go from a fluid medium, which is very sensory, you know, in womb, but normally you would push your way through the birth canal. So right. you would get, be, be getting the, the felt sense of what we call proprioception, mm-hmm. like someone giving you a big squeeze. You know where you are. With mm-hmm. the C-section, you don't get the big squeeze. And mm-hmm. what happens is you get airlifted away from your mom and sometimes even had to be pulled out because there's a little bit of a suction if the baby's head is already descended into the pelvis. And so it can feel fast violent, ter- and terrifying. And, so the, you know, when, who would have guessed? Duke, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, the question I have, excuse me, when, when the Duke doctor does this, um, yeah. I, I'm assuming, you, have you spoken with him and kind of I watched him... the video, and I watched oh, the mother man. relax. And they had a little mm-hmm. video, and, this Duke, the doc, and then I used this story with my people who come to see me, and they all just relax when they hear it, if they've had a C-section. Because what the, the doctor says is, hello, little baby, I know you're in there. So the doctor's making it relational right away. Hello, awesome. I know you're in there. 
That's we so have to break, break, isn't it? And then the doctor yeah. goes, yeah. we need, we, yeah. And it's that simple. Totally. You know? So, and the doctor goes, we need to bring you out a different way. So you're going to feel me, you know, I'm going to have to open your mama up really fast, and you're going to feel my hands, and I need to find your head. So I need your help. Oh, I want you to God. help me find, yeah, isn't that awesome? And all of a sudden, it's relaxed, and it's no longer, it's not as traumatic as it could be, because it's not, it's relational, and, and there's little, oh, this is what's going to happen. There's a little prep. And so the baby's included as a sentient being, which it is, you mm-hmm. know, and, and it, it helps. So with the kids, once they tell their story, like this little girl, I have those little t- tunnels that kids can crawl through. And she got in a panic. She couldn't decide which end of the tunnel to put her mom at. That was another session. And that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she was just playing out the whole story. And eventually, I, I didn't want the doctor to be the bad guy because right. the doctor also saved her life. And so we had to make right. sure, you know, I had a goal that, no, we're not going to, you know, demonize the doctor here. We're going to get rid of your fear, sweetheart. And so eventually I could say, well, the doctor just had bad manners. He wasn't trying to hurt you. And it wasn't until I got the mom to really own her choice to have a C-section instead of feel guilty about it because the placenta was in the way. Then the mother said, okay. I, I said, you know, you made a choice because you wanted a live baby. I think that was a good choice to make. Yeah, and then the mother, Right? Yeah, and then okay. the mother yeah. could yeah. feel empowered. And once the mother felt empowered, the girl relaxed more. Oh, that's beautiful. It's so interesting. You know, it it is. It's like this, you never know what's going to come out of these sessions, but if you stay with it and you understand the sensitivity of the nervous system, and she's the one who taught me that, no, it was a different girl. She was six who was born uh, a preemie and was in the NIC unit. But she taught me that, Babies can make up identity beliefs that are inaccurate. And this Hmm. six-year-old believed she was bad. She believed, I'm bad. And she brought in a little card she'd made when we had started doing treatment. Bad, bad baby. I'm so, so bad. And this little crying, you know, stick baby in a box in the incubator with big tears, every page, bad baby, bad, bad baby. And then on the back page, I am such a bad girl. And I was like, no. Heartbreaking. Babies aren't bad, right? And she didn't have bad parents or anything. Yeah. So anyway, I realized, oh, that was her nervous system. Trying to figure out what was chaotic. It had no Mm. context to organize the chaos of being with her mom, without her mom, in the NIC unit. And it kept the fight response going. So when you self-attack, and I work with this with adults all the time, you know, I bet there's people listening in who will know that they do self-attack thinking. They blame themselves for everything, and they're almost relentlessly Mm -hmm. self-attacking. That will exhaust your nervous system. Mm -hmm. And once you understand that self-attack was a very primitive brain fight response, because by having a self-attack, at least the self exists. 
And when there's overwhelming fear, you might not know you exist. And then by using the attack, you've got the fight response alive. So it's the nervous system's best attempt in an overwhelming situation. And it forms identity beliefs and behaviors. So I work with couples with this all the time. You know, not to blame, not to self-attack, not to play out the way you were raised as an infant with your, it will play out, but you have to know it's going to and not let it derail your relationship. Because once those infant stories play out, you're trying to heal them. And that's back to the, you know, the hidden stories. We want to tell the story so it can be put to rest. So this little story. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I just want to see this question. Do you find that once they understand, become cognizant of what the story is, that it really creates this giant leap in healing? Absolutely. Because the brain hates confusion. And if you can name the story and go, oh, this is my early shock imprint, or oh, this is what it felt like when my dad died when I was a kid, or oh, this is what it felt like when my parents got a divorce, or oh, this is why I'm so overly attentive to my husband because I'm afraid we're going to get divorced, even though we're not even thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because it happened as a kid. So you're almost creating the environment of the old story, and then the body will start behaving as if that's still happening. So once you can name the story or recognize your attempts to heal by telling the story unconsciously and you make it conscious, that's where the, that's where the leaps and bounds of personal healing happen. It's something we call cellular memory is the story without the consciousness. Because the cells all, you know, we experienced it. We call that, this was from Dr. Alan Fogel, who was head of the infant uh, research lab at Salt Lake. And um, they were working with the babies and trying to help the babies and the mothers. And when the story goes from implicit, that means it's buried, and it starts to come to the surface, that's what we call explicit. Now it's an explicit story. So if you can name it, your brain is going to relax because it knows what you're working with. And then how you participate in it will determine whether it re-traumatizes you or it heals you. And there's something I call staying on the surfboard, which means when you get to the stage of your own healing where you kind of know the story or you can imagine it and you start to allow the story to bubble to the surface, because it will, Um, then you have to stay on the surfboard of all of this discomfort because we try to avoid our original discomfort from ever happening again. But what people don't know is their bodies are much bigger now and have more cells to process. And literally, unprocessed emotions make chemicals. You know, if if it's not sequenced sensory to motor, what happens is it stores its chemicals in the body, and, and that's why people can have, uh, you know, if some, anyone's a massage therapist out there, they might do a massage and someone has a flashback. 
Mm-hmm. It's because the touch has sort of warmed up the tissue and now those chemicals are trying to tell the story. But if you can know the story good enough, parts of the puzzle, you can stay on the surfboard and let this wave of discomfort pass instead of becoming the wave. And that's the stamina as an adult to be the healthy adult, not letting your reactive child self run your adult life. And then you let that wave of emotion pass, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, phew, okay, I'm back. I can look around and orient. You know, I'm not stuck in my retaliatory nervous system or my scared, dissociated self. And, and, you know, orienting is how we don't have to polarize and, and hate each other. You know, we can stay mm-hmm. oriented. We can actually have a discussion. It's not life or death threatening. Right. Wow. I'd love to delve in, into some of your books. And for any audience members that are joining us, we're with Annie Brook, um, and your website is AnnieBrook.com. And you've written some books on somatic, um, uh, books on birth trauma and attachment, attachment and relationships. And, you know, one of the things that really um, I touched me was uh, your connection to play and how as adults, we forget to play, and how, I'm just very curious, how as, you know, because everybody takes things so seriously, we want to control (laughs) things, and, and, you know, how do we get out of our brain trying to control, get it to stop trying to control everything, and get back to the place where we are um, connected to play, to creativity, to imagination, to really where I believe the person that we were meant to be. Oh, I agree with you there. You know, I bet that we're meant to have this creative, playful curiosity for life when we're not busy being afraid or blaming others. And so I did write a little book called Awakening the Creative Mind. And it has games. It has writing exercises that help you to improvise. And it has little uh, sort of interactive games you can play as a family or with your partner. And I was fortunate when I went through that sort of deep trauma in my early 20s that when I went out to study meditation and all these new pieces of ways of being, one of them was studying with someone who taught improvisation. And Mm. it's like getting your brain out of the way because our (laughs) controlling brain, yeah, our controlling brain totally wanted to organize everything. So this woman, Ruth Sapora, she was a master teacher out in the Bay Area. And for five years, I studied with her. I didn't know at the time that I was doing a life-enhancing skill set, that I was getting a life-enhancing skill set, which was that improvisational ability to make choices in the moment without getting locked in or fixated on my own opinion or what I should be doing, but actually to, to respond to what's happening. And that's how I work with kids so well and with, uh, with people is that I'm responding to them in the moment. She would have us mm. do an exercise where we'd be in just, you know, moving around in a room. Maybe there were 10 of us in the class or something. 
And she'd hit a little wooden drum for rhythm. So she'd get this drum beat going, you know, and she'd say, okay, you can do five things. You can walk. You can run. You can stop. You can turn. I guess it was four things. So we could only do one of those four things. But she was in charge of telling us which one. So here we are, you know, you're, you're listening to that rhythm. And she goes, stop. And she's beating the rhythm, and then she goes, run. And then you're running, and she's beating the rhythm, and she goes, turn. And so you can't do what you want to do. She's providing a kind of containment and structure with movement. And I watched, you know, all of us watched our own brains try to sneak, right? Oh, well, maybe I'll skip. No, that wasn't one of the directions. (laughs) Or maybe, you know, she says run and I'll just plod along. No, that wasn't, a, you know, an option. And we started every single class with 20 minutes of this stuff. And I watched my brain slowly give it up. Wow. It's like, and then what happened is I became much more interested in the choreography around me, the interaction between people in the space. All of a sudden, I wasn't trying to be in charge of what I did. I was just free to be guided and to, to feel more. I was much more perceptive about where there was an opening in the room or where there was, you know, there's three people together. Oh, look, they're bunched up in a corner. It's as if my perceptions became much more expanded mm. because my mental body wasn't in the way. And so that's what I teach. I have this, you know, I teach it live or I have it as a, you know, self-paced class people can do because I found so many parents don't know how to play. And when they don't know how to play, they miss out on their kids. Oh, 100%. True. It's kind of drummed out yeah. of us. I call totally. it the, the societal, uh, uh, this, this path that, uh, of, of creating good little compliant consumers uh, and in your parents, you know, it's it's all about if you if you if you continue to do that after a certain age, uh, you'll uh, you'll embarrass yourself. You won't be taken right. seriously. You, I mean, all these thought viruses that the parents start implanting, you know, giving to their kids about uh, if you continue with that, and and then you go to school, and the same thing happens. They do the same thing. Mm-hmm. They reinforce that, and before you know it. You don't have any 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 uh, creativity or inspiration or, or or joy anymore. Play. You're not playing because uh, you're you're you you've now taken on the thought virus that play is bad. Play is um, play is uh, is not serious. Is not being serious. Yeah. It has no value in your life. That's that's uh, and, it. And good. Yeah, and and it's so you know contrary to all of that. Play is where cooperation happens, creative problem solving, you know, working things out is what real play is. This isn't just play, waste mm-hmm. your time, you know, um, distract yourself. Kids who are really playing, they're doing something. Mm-hmm. True. Even a, a little True. baby, you know, down on the floor, they might be looking at something you don't even know they're looking at. But they're right. motivated. They're curious. And that curiosity mm-hmm. is what is part of the health. And when we put kids right into sports, they don't get, you know, they don't get unstructured time to dig in the dirt. Right. 
That is so true. Sudden, it all parents, becomes, parents are trying to do that right. It all becomes crazy. They're, yeah. The kids are, it, it's, that, it's that sandbox time that is some of the mm-hmm. most important time. That's mm-hmm. a good way to yep. say it. It is the sandbox. Yep. Yes. Yeah, when I was a kid, I had a, I, <laughs> I had a four-star mud pie restaurant. You can you can come oh anytime God. and serve you one up. <laughs> I love I Serving up mud pie, right? were you? Yeah, and, and one day I ventured, I ventured into the tar on the road because it looked so interesting and Uh-oh. gooey, not knowing yeah. that. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that petroleum is bad for you. <laughs> I know, I know that. It just, it just looked inviting, right? Under my, oh, my God. Of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's, that's, the, that's the great thing about growing up in the first place. You, 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 you thought it was cool. You thought it was, you didn't know it was what it was. And you mm-hmm. were allowed to go out. You got out. You went out and did it. And what did you? You're laughing about it today. The fact that you are means that it 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 definitely was the lesson you needed to learn. Uh, it, in my view, it, it's interesting because I have to tell you, Annie. Uh, I I am I was a five and a half pound preemie. I think it was born normally. It wasn't it was a C-section back in '58, but uh-huh. uh, I I was I was born premature, five and a half pounds, middle child, and uh, I, I I'm 64 and I. I play uh, every day. My girlfriend calls me goofy all the time. I'm always playing, doing something, you know, and and that's because, you know, a lot of that is because I, I've learned not to take uh, things so seriously, Um, Uh take life so seriously, Uh just seeing it in a different way, kind of, but I had, I I, got to say something. I had no idea whatsoever that there were there were uh, adverse consequences, seemingly adverse consequences, uh, or consequences that played out in, in a, an adverse way from having a, a C-section versus normal birth. Uh, I mean, to me, this is all. I don't have kids, so I'm 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 just bowled over by the 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 um, the information that you're providing, the enlightenment you're providing it's about amazing. this. Because I can think of people out there, and I'm going, "Gosh, she needs to talk with you. He needs to talk with you." Yeah, <laughs> because, especially when you talk about, you know, self attack and blame. You self attack and blame. I know oh somebody gosh. right now who's probably dealing with the same issue, because mm-hmm. it, you know, and you've just given me a, 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 an idea about where to direct him to some of your books um, yeah, to right. yeah. to kind of get a sense of what mm-hmm. it is, why he's attacking himself incessantly and the whole alcoholism thing when you when mm-hmm. you uh, um, I, I've always I've always said that somebody who uh, drinks too much uh, one of the reasons maybe not all of them one of the reasons is because they don't they don't like this, their state of being they don't they don't right. really yeah um, they don't like where they are in life they don't like who they are uh, they're mm-hmm. uh, they're just not they're not happy with themselves and their life and mm-hmm. basically, they want to feel differently than they do, and that's one of way, one of the ways to do it. Uh, take drugs, yeah. uh, smoke marijuana, uh, and drink a lot, because it just completely takes them outside of the reality that they are actually creating for themselves. They want to create a different reality, but it's a it's a false narrative, and yeah. it goes away. and And they have to deal. They have to go right back to. Uh, when the high wears off, they, they're back where they were. And it's just a, uh, a, a even constant. Worse, uh, yeah. 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 Even yeah. worse. Yeah. They don't get any better. to the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. 
Exactly. I'm curious, yeah. Annie, is there, have you uh, discovered anything with breech birth where a child comes out feet first? Is there a disorientation? <laughs> I'm just curious about that. Yeah. Well, what there, you were saying sounded so fascinating uh-huh. to me. I, I want to make sure everybody knows that I don't think birth is a pathology. It's an experience. Right. right. You know, and when Good you can point. decode yeah. the experience, then you've mm-hmm. got some, like I worked with one kid who was born breech and his mom would bring him in. And they were in such a power struggle at home. And so they came in for treatment, and he would literally be, get on top of the car and not come down. And I'd have to go out of my office and watch him and his mom in this power struggle. And it turns out for him, he was set up breech, which means you come out feet or butt first, not head first. Mm-hmm. And the mother went to... Uh, a yogi teacher, uh, you know, like a yoga teacher and to try to turn the baby and so this guy was trying to sort of show off to his whole group that he could get this baby to turn and so the woman went there with her midwife because ideally you want the baby to turn around if possible and he tried to sort of force this turning and it didn't work and the lady the mother was like describing what an awful experience that was to be in that class with everybody watching, with him insisting. And so she finally walked out with her support person. And I thought, wow, if that's not the beginning of a power struggle, I don't know what it is. Wow. And so with this kid, part of it is understanding, for me to really understand, he does things backwards. And he likes Mm. it. And so then I had the Mm -hmm. mom and dad in the office. And they were sitting there, you know, telling me all the ways their kid wasn't behaving. And I just looked right at the kid. He's about eight. And I go, you like to do things backwards, don't you? And he got down on the floor. Literally, he crawled backwards. My office was like 12 by 12 in the chairs. He, he, he crawled backwards through all the chairs. He crawled backwards under the, through the tunnel. And he sat back down and beamed with joy. And it was like, oh, oh, he told this story. Hmm. You know, it's like, and so to know if you've had that, how do you care for yourself and your experience without it becoming a behavioral pattern that gets you in trouble? Mm -hmm. Like I had, you know, I used to be a university professor and a master's in somatic psychology program. And, uh, some of the students, like one woman born breech, she was having a horrible time finishing her thesis. And she just couldn't go through the threshold. And we had to include, you know, relax that whole story around, because breech can really pull on the jaw and the neck. It can have a a difficult physical piece as well. But once she realized she wanted to do everything backwards, we had to help her find beginning, middle, and end, which is another improvisation game. You know, we're coming towards the end. In a C-section, same time. A kid has struggles with transition sometimes because they had a difficult birth. And they won't, you know, go from playing to getting ready to go to school. They'll they'll struggle at the transition phase because the transition was full of fear. And so you want to help the nervous system relax Understand that birth was a moment in time. It's not forever. 
but your primitive brain doesn't have to hold on as if it's life-threatening now. Isn't that wild? So true. That's so well amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think if, if, if there's any, you know, takeaway from people listening in, I would say, how do you relax enough and pause? Like the ground rules for self-care would be stop in your tracks and pause and breathe so you don't get overwhelmed. Stay relational by looking around, orienting to the people near you, making eye contact so you're not reactive. And that way the sensory signal has a chance to go up to the higher cortex for creative problem solving instead of getting derailed at the emotional history, <laughs> you know, the emotional mm-hmm. level where you're, you were defenseless and little and you did these behaviors of protection. And so mm-hmm. learning to stabilize your own nervous system and stay present instead of reacting is huge. And maybe, you know, someone can chip away at one little piece at a time. They don't have to do it all at once. But you can go, wow, why is it that I get triggered by this? Somebody says something and I take it as a rejection. Well, maybe they weren't wanted when they were born. Maybe they were given up for adoption. Mm. Who knows? But your triggers will be the Hansel and Gretel breadcrumb to help you find your way back home to heal. Because what, I love this quote, when you can claim the events of your life, all that you've been and done, which may take some time, you're fierce with reality. You know, that means you're fierce with presence. You're present. You're not afraid. You're just there. And working through that so that waves of fear don't, you know, engulf people that they, they're, they're like becoming overly afraid and then reactive in that process. That's Florida That's Scott true. Maxwell who said that quote. That's so beautiful, Annie. I, I can't even tell you. I just I felt that so much in my heart and just your words and your presence. I, 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 it, I just felt all of my energies kind of sink in and my whole system relax. So I'm so mm. grateful to you for that. And I, I can't, I, I feel like we're just on the tip of the iceberg, Michael. And <laughs> I, I know so our time together, it just goes by so quickly. And we would, I know we would love to have you back. And I want to make sure that you can uh, let our audience know here on PRNFM how they can get in touch with you, not just your website at anniebrook.com, but um, some of the things that you, you know, how, what's the, what types of oh, events yeah. you or how you would like to get, have mm-hmm. audience members reach out to you? Well, when people go to my website, if they like to read, you can download free PDFs. They have a whole library that has things about birth trauma and communication skills and you know, I like giving away resources. And then I have online classes where, where I will guide them, or you can do self-paced. But there you get a, a membership site, you get videos, you get reflective writing and theory, and you start to be able to do the inner work. 
And then people can always, um, you know, I'm training therapists. Like my, right now, my big goal this year is to have people who are maybe already therapists but getting burnt out, and they want to add the depth of somatic work to their skill set or they're mm-hmm. just getting started, and I want them to be able to help people. Because I've found, you know, I've been a therapist for 40 years, and the more I got into the hidden story and the body awareness and the neuroscience, the more efficiently I could help people. The therapy's expensive, and I want people to graduate. So if True. there's therapists Beautiful. out there, mm-hmm. you know, they, they can come on in and get training, and I would say also I have an Instagram account. You can go to Instagram.com slash Therapy. And Brooke is B-R-O-O-K. There's no E on it. You can go to Annie Brooke Therapy. I also have a YouTube channel which has uh, information about, you know, working with adoption imprints and just, a, just everything I've been pulling together all these years. I feel like I've finally got all the pieces in place that people could probably find an entry point to help themselves. Oh, and then I, every answer. Friday I do, uh, uh, most Fridays I do a free one hour or 45 minute Facebook live. So you just go to uh, facebook.com, the Brook Institute, and, or, or it'll be up on Instagram either way. But you can ask questions and you can, you know, we, I share practices that help people actually change their own behavior. Mm-hmm. That is awesome, yeah. which is what people, I mean, are you, are you getting a lot of, I, I, well, we can go on this, but I'm sure you're getting a lot of interest in what you're doing, and especially on Fridays and things. Um, yeah. There are a lot of, yeah, people who, who I, I think there's a lot of people out there now becoming highly aware uh, that and, and are looking for transformation. And what you have to offer is, is just mind-blowing with regard to where they can begin to kind of um, make that you know, the roots of making that transformation for themselves. Oh, That's to me the exciting part, right? If we could all have our own little piece of transformation and enjoy our mm-hmm. life more and, and care for others more, wow, that yeah. would be transforming. Yeah. yeah. Thank no, you yeah. both for what you do in yeah. this time. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, Annie. You know, I go back to that quote, and I think you're one of the things that helps move the clouds so that people can see the sunshine and feel it really deep in their heart. And I'm going to let Michael close. Um, I, I'm just so grateful that you, for your time and for sharing and all the work that you do. And, and Michael, as you do so eloquently, I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, first, let me say, Annie, thank you so much uh, for for uh, taking the time out of your busy, busy day uh, of helping to be life and helping people <laughs> My pleasure. to, to yeah. come on. And I really hope that our, our audience um, takes a moment to look at your resources, to tap into what you have, what you have to offer, because it is, it is something that everyone can benefit from. I, I find that uh, the awareness uh, of something is is half is half you know gets you halfway there, uh, and when you can yeah. become aware of 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 your own behaviors and and have the the self awareness to look outside of uh, those behaviors to um, to find out exactly you know, become aware enough to 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 wonder and and seek resources that can help you uh, understand why you're acting the way that you do. It is amazing. I know my mind has been blown by this episode, and I really appreciate 
you're coming on. And I want to remind our audience that um, I, I, this is an episode you're definitely going to want to share. So outside of uh, PRNFM uh, on Saturday evenings, we do have this on Connect to Love, the podcast. You want to make sure that you uh, uh, tap into this episode. Listen to it a couple of times. There's a lot of treasure here, uh, a lot of, lot of treasure. Uh, and I'm sure you will, as I like to say, find something in here, nuggets that you can find uh, to enrich your life and your personal transformation and evolution. And I would say until our next show, uh, this has been a pleasure, a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you so you. much, everybody.